0: Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 31. Verses 1 and 2. After two days was the feast of the Passover and of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. Burkett notes, this chapter gives us a sad and sorrowful account of the high priest's conspiracy against the life of our blessed Savior, in which we have observable the persons that made this conspiracy, the manner of the conspiracy, and the time when this conspiracy was made. One, the persons conspiring are the chief priests, scribes, and elders, that is, the whole Jewish Sahedrim or general council. They lay their malicious heads together to contrive the destruction of the innocent Jesus. Thence learn that general councils have erred and may err fundamentally in matters of doctrine. So did this general council at Jerusalem, consisting of chief priests, doctors, and elders, with the high priests their president, in not believing Jesus was to be the Messiah after all the miracles wrought before their eyes. Observe, too, the manner of this conspiracy against our Savior's life. It was clandestine, secret, and subtle. They consulted how they might take him by craft and put him to death. Thence note that Satan makes use of the subtlety of crafty men and abuses their parts as well as their power for his own purposes and designs. The devil sends no fools on his errands. Observe 3. The circumstance of time when this conspiracy was managed, at the Feast of the Passover it being a custom among the Jews to execute malfactors at their solemn feasts, as at the Feast of the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of the Tabernacle, at which times all the Jews came up to Jerusalem to sacrifice, and then they put malfactors to death that all Israel might see and hear and not do so wickedly. Accordingly, this Feast of the Passover was waited for by the Jews as a fit opportunity to put our Savior to death, the only objection was that it might occasion a tumult among the people, there being such a mighty concourse at the time in Jerusalem. But Judas, making them a proffer, they readily comply with the motion and resolve to take the first opportunity to put our Savior to death. Verses 3-9 through nine. And being in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment, of spikenard, very precious. And she broke the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than three hundred pence and have been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. And Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble ye here? She's wrought a good work on me. For ye have the poor with you always. And whensoever ye will, you may do them good. But me you have not always. She hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Verily I say unto you, Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. Burkett notes. Several particulars are observable in this piece of history, as first, the action this holy woman performed. She pours a box of precious ointment upon our Saviour's head as he sat at meat, According to the custom of the eastern countries at their feasts. Murmuring Judas valued this ointment at three hundred pence, which makes of our money nine pounds, seven shillings, and sixpence, reckoning the Roman penny at sevenpence halfpenny. I do not find that any of the apostles were at thus much cost and charge to put honour upon our Saviour, as this poor woman was. Learn hence that where a strong love prevails in the heart towards Christ, nothing is adjudged too dear for him neither will it suffer itself to be outshined by any examples. The weakest woman that strongly loves our Savior will piously strive with the greatest apostles to express the fervor of her affections towards him. Observe, too, how this action was resented and reflected upon by Judas and some other disciples whom he had influenced. They had indignation within themselves and said, To what purpose is this waste? Oh, how doth a covetous heart think everything too good for Christ. Happy was it for this poor woman that she had a more righteous judge to pass sentence upon her action than murmuring Judas. Observe 3. How readily our holy Lord vindicates this good woman. She says nothing for herself, nor need she, having so good an advocate. First, he rebukes Judas. Let her alone. Why trouble ye the woman? Next, he justifies the action. She hath wrought a good work, because it flowed from a principle of love to Christ. And lastly, he gives the reason of her action. She did it for my burial. As kings and great persons were wont in the eastern countries at their funerals to be embalmed with odorous and sweet perfumes, so, says our Savior, this woman, to declare her faith in me as her King and Lord, doth with this box of ointment, as it were beforehand, embalm my body for its burial. True faith puts honor upon a crucified, as well as a glorified Savior this holy woman accounts Christ worthy of all honors in his death, believing it would be a sweet-smelling sacrifice unto God and the savor of life unto his people. Observe 4. Our Savior doth not only justify and defend the actions of this poor woman, but magnifies and extols it, declaring that she should be rewarded for it with an honorable memorial in all ages of the church, wheresoever this gospel is preached." This shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. Note hence, the care which Christ takes to have the good deeds of his children not buried in the dust with them, but had an everlasting remembrance. Though sin causes men to rot above ground and stink alive, and when they are dead, leaves an ignominy upon their graves, yet will the actions of the just smell sweet and blossom in the dust. Verses 10 and 11. And Judas Iscariot, One of the twelve went unto the chief priests to betray him unto them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Perkett notes observe here one the person betraying our blessed Redeemer Judas, Judas a professor, Judas a preacher, Judas an apostle, and one of the twelve, whom Christ had chosen out of all the world to be his dearest friends, his family and household. Shall we wonder to find friends unfriendly or unfaithful to us when our Saviour had a traitor in his own family? Observe two the heinous nature of Judas's sin he betrayed Jesus, Jesus his Maker, Jesus his master. It is no strange or uncommon thing for the vilest of sins and most horrid impieties to be acted by such persons as make the most eminent profession of holiness and religion. Observe three. What was the occasion that led Judas to the commission of this sin? It was his inordinate love of money. I do not find that Judas had any particular malice, spite, or ill will against our Saviour, but a base and unworthy spirit of covetousness possessed him, and this made him sell his master. Covetousness is the root sin. An eager and insatiable thirst after the world is a parent of the most monstrous and unnatural sins. For which reason our Saviour doubles his caution. Luke 12:15 take heed and beware of covetousness. It shows us both the danger of the sin and the great care we ought to take to preserve ourselves from it. Verses 12 to 16. And the first day of the unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover, his disciples said unto him, Where wilt thou that we go and prepare, that thou may eatest the Passover? And he sendeth forth two of his disciples, and saith unto them, Go ye into the city, and there shall meet you a man bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he shall go in, say ye to the good man of the house, The master saith, Where is the guest chamber, where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There, make ready for us. And his disciples went forth, and came into the city, and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. Perkett notes, The time for the celebration of Passover being now at hand, Christ sends two of his disciples to Jerusalem to prepare necessary things in order thereunto. And here we have observable, one, an eminent proof of Christ's divine nature in telling them all the particulars which they should meet within the city, as a man bearing a pitcher of water, etc. Two, how readily the heart of this householder was disposed to receive our Savior and his disciples, and to accommodate them with all things needful upon this occasion. Our blessed Savior had not a lamb of his own, and pre no money wherewith to buy one, yet he finds an excellent accommodation in this poor man's house, as if he dwelt in Ahab's ivory palace, and had the provisions of Solomon's stable. When Christ has a Passover to celebrate, he will dispose the heart to a free reception of himself. The room which Christ will enter into must be a large room, an upper room, a room furnished and prepared. A large room is an enlarged heart, enlarged with love and thankfulness. An upper room is a heart exalted, not puffed up with pride, but lifted up by heavenly mindedness. A room furnished is a soul adorned with the graces of the Holy Spirit. Into such a heart, and only such, will Christ enter. Verses 17 to 21 And in the evening he cometh with the twelve. And as they sat and did eat, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, One of you which eateth with me shall betray me. And they began to be sorrowful, and to say unto him, one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? And he answered and said unto them, It is one of the twelve that dippeth with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goeth, as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of God is betrayed. Good were it for that man if he'd never been born. Burkett notes Observe here one the unexampled boldness of this impudent traitor Judas. He presumes as soon as he sold his master to sit down at the table with him and to eat the Passover with his disciples. Had the presence of Judas polluted this ordinance to any but himself, doubtless our Savior would never have suffered him to approach unto it. But hence we learn, one, that nothing is more ordinary for an unholy person to press in unto the holy ordinances of God, which they have no right, while such, to partake of, two that the presence of such persons doth pollute the ordinance only to themselves. Holy persons are not polluted by their sins; therefore, ought not to be discouraged from coming by their presence there. Observe too what a surprising and astonishing word it was which dropped from our Saviour's mouth among his disciples: "One shall betray me. Yea, one of you shall betray me." Can any church upon earth expect purity in all its members? when Christ's own family of twelve had a traitor and a devil in it. Yet though it was very sad to hear of one, it was a matter of joy to understand there was but one. One hypocrite in the congregation is too much, but there is cause of rejoicing if there be no more. Observe 3. Christ did not name Judas and say, Thou, O perfidious Judas, art the traitor, but one of you shall betray me. Doubtless it was to draw him into repentance and to prevent the giving him any provocation. Lord, how sad it is for any of thy family who pretend friendship to thee to conspire with thine enemies against thee, for any that eat of thy bread to lift up their heels against thee. Observe, for the disciples' sorrow upon these words of Christ and the effect of that sorrow. Their sorrow was, as well it might be, exceeding great. Well might the innocent disciples be overwhelmed with sorrow, to hear that their master should die, that he should die by treason, that the traitor should be one of themselves. But though their sorrow was great, yet was the effect of their sorrow very good. It wrought in them a holy suspicion of themselves, and caused every one to search himself and say, Master, is it I? Learn hence, that it is possible for such secret wickedness to lodge in the heart we never suspected, till time and temptation draw it forth. None of the disciples suspected, nay, Judas himself never apprehended, that depth of iniquity and hypocrisy which was found lodging in him. Yet note that though the disciples were jealous and suspicious, yet it was of themselves, not of one another, nay, not of Judas himself. Every one said, Master, is it I? not, master, is it Judas. True sincerity and Christian charity will make us more suspicious of ourselves than of any other. It hopes the best of others, and fears the worst of ourselves. Observe 5, that though Judas sees himself pointed at by our Savior, and hears the dreadful threatenings denounced against him, that it had been better for him that he had never been born, yet he is no more blanked than innocence itself. Resolute sinners run on desperately in their evil courses, and with open eyes see and meet their own destruction, without being either dismayed at it or concerned about it. This shameless man had the impudence to say to our blessed Savior, Master, is it I? Our Savior gives him a direct answer. Thou sayest it. Did not Judas, we think, blush extremely, cast down his guilty eyes, and let fall his drooping head at so galling an intimation? nothing less. We read of nothing like it. Lord, how does obduracy and sin steal the brow and make it incapable of all relenting impressions? Observe, lastly, how our Savior prefers non-entity before damnation. It had been better for that man if he had never been born. A temporal, miserable being is not worse than no being, but eternal misery is much worse than non-entity better to have no being than not to have a being in Christ. It had been better for Judas that he had never been born than to lie under everlasting wrath. Verses 22 through 26. And as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Verily, I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Burkett notes Immediately after the celebration of the Passover, our Lord institutes his holy supper, in which institution we have observable the author, the time, the elements, and the ministerial actions. Observe here, one, the author of this new sacrament, Jesus took bread. Note, thence, that to institute a sacrament is the sole prerogative of Jesus Christ. The Church has no power to make new sacraments. It is only her duty to celebrate those which our Savior has made. Observe, two, the time of the institution, the night before his Passion, the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. Learn thence that it is very necessary, when sufferings are approaching, to have recourse to the table of the Lord, which affords both an antidote against fear and a restorative to our faith. Observe three the sacramental elements, bread and wine, bread representing the body, and wine the blood of our dear Redeemer. Observe four the ministerial actions, the breaking of the bread and the blessing of the cup. As to the bread, Jesus took it that is, set it apart from common use, and separated it for holy ends and purposes. He blessed it, that is, prayed for a blessing upon it, and break it, thereby shadowing forth his body broken upon the cross. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, This broken bread signifies my body, suddenly to be broken upon the cross, for the redemption and salvation of a lost world. Do this in remembrance of my death. As to the cup, Christ having set it apart by prayer and thanksgiving, he commands his disciples to drink all of it. And accordingly, they all drunk of it, says this evangelist. And our Savior gives his reason for it, verse 24. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for the remission of sins. That is, the wine in this cup represents the shedding of my blood by which this new covenant between God and man is ratified and confirmed. Once we gather that every communicant has as undoubted a right to the cup as to the bread in the Lord's Supper. Drink ye all of this, says Christ. Therefore, to deny the cup to the common people is sacrilege, and directly contrary to our Savior's institution. And Christ, calling the cup the fruit of the vine, affords a strong argument against the doctrine of transubstantiation. Thus, That which after consecration remains the fruit of the vine is not substantially changed into the blood of Christ. But Christ called the wine in the cup the fruit of the vine after consecration. Therefore, that which Christ gave the apostles to drink was not substantially changed into his blood. Wine is metaphorically called the blood of the grape. Why may it not, by a like metaphor, be styled the blood of Christ? After the celebration was over, our Savior and his disciples sung a hymn, as the Jews were wont to do at the Passover, the six Eucharistical Psalms from the 113th to the 119th Psalm. From Christ's example, we may gather how suitable it is to sing a psalm after the celebration of the Lord's Supper, how fit it is that God be glorified in his church by singing of psalms, and in particular when the Lord's Supper is celebrated. When they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Verses 27 through 31. And Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. But Peter said unto him, Although all shall be offended, yet will not I. And Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this day, even in this night, before the cock crowed twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. But he spake the more vehemently, If I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. Likewise also said they all. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, the warning that our Savior gives his disciples of their forsaking of him in the time of his suffering. All ye shall be offended because of me this night. Learn, that Christ's dearest friends forsook him and left him alone in the midst of his greatest distress and danger. Observe two, what was the cause of their flight? It was their fear, the weakness of their faith, and the prevalency of their fear. Oh, how sad and dangerous it is for the best of men to be left under the power of their own fears in the day of temptation. Observe three, notwithstanding our Savior's prediction, St. Peter's presumption of his own strength and standing, though all men forsake thee, yet will not I. Learn, thence, that self-confidence and a presumptuous opinion of their own strength is a sin very incident to the holiest and best of men. This good man resolved honestly, no doubt, but too, too much in his own strength. Little did he think what a feather he should be in the wind of temptation if once left to the power and prevalency of his own fears. None are so near falling as those who are most confident of their own standing. If ever we stand in the day of trial, it is the fear of falling that must enable us to stand.